you're new with us, we are studying the letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Today we are in chapter 5. I invite you in on that study, whether you're out here or uh, watching us online. If you're uh, here and or watching and you're not a Christian, this is a, it's a great Sunday for you to be here. This text could not be more relevant for all of us because it speaks to us about the fact that we will all die. And uh, we need to be prepared for... Uh, what happens next. So the title of the sermon is our future after death. And so let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we uh, jump in. Father, grateful for your word today. Your word has a way of cutting us, breaking us, but also of healing us, cheering us. Pray your word would do work in our hearts today. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, this is the time of the year where I begin to anticipate, like many of you, the, the flowers and all the beauty that spring brings. We begin to see things bloom. We start planting flowers, and soon I'll be tending to my yard. I like yard work currently. It's because I have a very small yard. And I uh, was able to manicure it with some help of others last year. And uh, back in October, I almost won Yard of the Month in our neighborhood. Uh, when we moved to this new neighborhood, I saw these immaculate yards and I said, I've got some work to do. And so uh, we were having our 5 p.m. service last October and some strange guy was taking pictures of our house. And uh, one of our... Uh, females in our house texted my wife and said, I don't know who this creeper is uh, driving around taking pictures. So we immediately started calling all of our neighbors and texting them to uh, keep an eye out and come to find out he was the individual who picked the yard of the month. And we were up for it. We didn't win and that was the last month. So we didn't get the sign yard of the month, but I wanted one that said almost yard of the month. Uh, but we're, we're back at it uh, th this spring. Uh, I used to not like yard work because we lived on a five-acre hillside and uh, we had a push mower. And so my dad would give me and my foster brother uh, 10 bucks each every week to mow the yard. And after doing that a few times, I gave my foster brother $5 of my 10 and I would go to the pool hall to see if I could turn it into 20. Very young entrepreneur, you know. Uh, did not like yard work back then. But you know, the thing about planting flowers and, and doing yard work is that things eventually die. And that's one of the ways the Bible describes our lives. We're like flowers. We're like the flowers of field. We, we, we bloom and we are beautiful, but then we wither and we die. Listen to how Job says it. A man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. Or Psalm one. Uh, 103. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. Now the passage we're looking at today doesn't speak of life as a flower, but it uses a different metaphor and that is of a tent. And it's the same basic idea. It speaks of the temporal and vulnerable nature of this existence. And the plain fact of the passage is it teaches that we are all going to die like a flower. We are all in this life 
living what we looked at last week, a light and momentary existence. And therefore, we should prioritize the kingdom of God, right? We tend to think that life is longer than it is. And so the temptation is to put off thinking about God in your current season. And I've heard all kinds of excuses, and I used to use them myself. So maybe students think to themselves when they hear me talk about this, well, I'll take my faith seriously later. And I just want to ask why. Why why wait till later? Uh, You can do chemistry. You can do Bible. Right? The the, the disciples were teenagers. You can take your faith seriously right now. Or as a college student, you often hear something like, well, I'm too busy really to think about God. Well, that's a different kind of college student than I was. I had a lot of time to play the PlayStation. Uh, Very good at Madden football, that kind of thing. Or when you're married, you think, well, I I can't really take my faith seriously, pal. Uh, The guy says, because my wife has me vacuuming all the time. Got an endless amount of of chores to do. Or you've got kids and you think, I've got too many problems. I'm like an Uber driver. I've got to be all over the place all the time. Or when you get your kids out of the house, well, now I've got to make up for lost time. Life is short. Eternity is long. So we make the most of our days. Now, I don't know how you hear the word death and how you think about death, but for the Christian, we view death positively. Death doesn't have the last word for us. We will have a new body fitted for a new creation, and we will be with our Christ forever. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we don't grieve when someone dies. We do. It's incredibly painful to watch the death of a loved one. It doesn't mean that dying is easy. Often it's terrible. But for a Christian, we do not grieve without hope. For what's coming to us is glorious. And not everyone deals with death like a Christian because they don't have this worldview. Here's here's some ways people think about death today. There's one group today that thinks death is cool. And so they watch movies about zombies or uh, shows like Dead Like Me or The Walking Dead. They, they're kind of the grunge group. They think death is cool. Another crowd tries to avoid even thinking deeply about death. So they trivialize it and speak of death like kicking the bucket or something like that. And someone to delay death at all costs, taking pills or talking about the fountain of youth, trying to find it doing everything they can cosmetically to, to, to uh, kind of curve the, the aging process. Some religions view death as cyclical. You, if you live a good life, you could come back as a good thing. You could be an ancestor, but if you live a bad life, you might be a mouse or something like that. Atheists basically have no idea after death. You come back to essentially be plant food. You just die. There's non-existence. But Christianity has a linear view and a positive view, and that is history is going somewhere. And when we die, the good news is we receive a new body eventually, and we will be with our Lord in a new creation. And this this text summarizes so beautifully for us this this picture of, of hope for a Christian as we die, a picture of the intermediate state, that is the period before we get a new resurrected body, 
and this look toward the future where we worship our triune God in a new heaven and new earth. And the practical use of this text for us today is what we see the Apostle Paul exemplifying, that is, this vision of resurrected life and the reality of the judgment seat of Christ. This should keep us faithful and hopeful in the present. It's the hope of resurrection, the hope of new creation, and the awe of Christ who is king and judge that causes us to want to make our lives count right now. And so I just have two points for you today, not three, as a token of grace for you. Number one, longing for a future body. This text is about a longing. It's about our future. Longing for a future body. That's the first paragraph. The second one, longing for our future with Christ. So first, longing for our future body. Remember last week the text said that that outwardly we are wasting away. And now Paul uh, is is on the same uh, line of thinking as he is looking to this uh, glorious hope of having a new new body. So he he speaks of, first of all, the promise of a new body in verse 1. Secondly, the frailty of the present body, verses 2 to 4. And then the Spirit's guarantee of this future body. In verse 5. So the promise of the new body is in verse 1, where he introduces this imagery of a tent and a house. A tent, that is this present body. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This tent's the present body. This house to come, this building to come, is the body to come. And all that comes with that. And Paul is so confident that the believers have this that he speaks of it as already uh, being in existence. We have this building from God. It's a promise. It originates from God. He is the source of this future resurrected body. It's a gift of grace. You see that he says, this is from God. We'll look at a passage in a few weeks on Easter, 2 Corinthians 5, which is going to stay in 2 Corinthians uh, on Easter, where he says regarding our salvation, all of this is from God. It says it's not made with hands. So you cannot manufacture this body. You can try creatine, steroids, spend hours in the gym, but only God can give you the body that is to come. And it's eternal in the heavens. This doesn't speak so much of the location, but of the glorious nature of it. This is what we're promised. This resurrected house. This new body. New hair. Right? I'm going to be looking like Idris Elba in that new heaven and new earth. Y'all holler at a boy. My son Joshua used to say, Papa, when Jesus rises you, you're going to get a new head. Yes, a whole lot more. Now, if there's one thing Paul knew, it was a tent. He was a tent maker by trade. And so he, and he came from a long line of, of leather workers. And we can understand this too because most of you, I would assume, have some experience with a tent. I do not like and never have liked sleeping in a tent. I enjoy camping till about 9 p.m. And then I want to go home and sleep with my wife in a house, right? (laughs) Jim Gaffigan would really like this verse. He's got that whole bit on tents, right? When he says, camping's a tradition in my family. He's like, camping is a tradition in everyone's family until we invented the house. Happy camper. He said, I, I tell you who the happy camper is, the guy leaving the campsite. He gets to take a shower. So get this comparison now. This body is a temporal, vulnerable tent. The new body is a building made by God. 
Now, if you were promised a mansion at OBX, but you had to walk there, so you had to take your tent, what would be on your mind as you proceeded to OBX? You wouldn't be so enamored with your tent. What would be on your mind is that mansion. You see, we as Christians should focus on death, not in a morbid sense, but because the hope of the future causes us to live faithfully in the present. I often tell students that really what we're doing in preaching is we're trying to help people die well. And in helping them die well, you actually will help them live well. We think about the end, not in a morbid sense, but in a hopeful sense, and that hope energizes our lives. This building from God is coming our way. Now, verses 2 to 4, he moves to talk about the, the current condition of this tent that we have, this body that we have, when he says, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we'd be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So we groan. You hear that a couple of times in those verses. What do we do in this current body? We have back aches. We have hearing loss. We have decreased energy. We need medication and metamucil, muscle therapy. My mind says I can still ball. But my body does not agree with, with my mind. I was talking to a friend the other day who's a missionary in Spain. And uh, he's got to know some of the professional basketball players in Spain. And his name's Ian. We, we were on seminary intramural basketball teams 20 years ago. And Ian said he looked at this guy and he says, In my mind, I can still take you. But it doesn't, it doesn't line up. Some of you... Folks who are, have a few years on me could even speak more to this, perhaps. But there's a, there's a groaning that he's, he's speaking of that's actually deeper than just your physical uh, ailments. And that is the groaning that you and I are made for more. We're made for heaven. And so we're groaning with this creation, Paul says in Romans 8. Groaning to put on this heavenly dwelling. Groaning to get out of this sinful world and be ushered into glory. Now, verse 3 speaks of what I uh, mentioned earlier, this intermediate state. This is one of the, the key texts uh, for an intermediate state. You often hear this text at uh, funerals. And he says, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. He's talking about putting on this new building, getting your resurrected body. And in the meantime, he says, when you die, you are found, as he says, naked. So the intermediate state is like the naked state. It's like you have an existence... Our spirit goes to be with God, but we still await the resurrected body. And so there's, there's continuity in this life with the next. It's going to be a glorious transformation, though, at the parousia, at the coming of Jesus Christ, when we receive this new body that is ours. Now, he's going to go on to say this intermediate state is better than, than the current life, but it's still not complete yet as we await that resurrection. He speaks of the more uh, groaning, verse 4, that we, he, and this time he adds, that we are being burdened. We're being burdened, not that we would be unclothed. That, that is, our hope is not in a disembodied existence. Just kind of floating around in no, no man's land. You know? But rather, our hope is 
the joining of soul and body, new resurrected body. In the current existence that we have, he says, we are being burdened. And that's, that's a word that Paul has already used earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, when he talked about being overwhelmed by the pressure of a, a particular experience that he said he despaired of life itself. And so here he's speaking of that idea that in the present life that we have, we have a lot of pressure. We have a lot of burdens. We are being burdened. We are groaning. And so we share this with Paul. All of humanity shares this with Paul. And a Christian shares it in a certain way. We know that one day what the new heaven and new earth will mean is that there will be no more burdens ever. No more grief ever. Paul speaks in this letter of fighting without and fears within. One day that will be no more. He speaks of the anxiety of all the churches. One day that will be no more anxiety, no more illness, no more conflict. A life without grief, a life without mourning. In this world, though, you will have trouble. And so what we hold out to the world, to those who are not Christians, is this glorious promise of a final salvation in which the burdens are replaced with just eternal blessing and glory, enjoyed with a new body, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. This is an echo of Isaiah chapter 25 when Isaiah is speaking of the great eschatological meal that we will have in heaven. And he says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will take away, he will take away from all the earth. That's a glorious picture of heaven. The best company. Great food. Pure joy. No death. No tears. He's going to swallow up death. And here he says he's going to swallow it up into life. That is eschatological life. Death is no more. And this new life is all we know. Paul says this in the 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So that's why we long for this. No more burdens, no more groaning. Thirdly here in this passage, verse 5, he speaks of the Spirit guaranteeing this for us. How do we know this is true? Sounds great. How, is, how do we know it's true? He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Again, you see the, the, the divine source of all of this prepared it. He's doing it. And he has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We've already looked at this in our studies of 2 Corinthians, mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament as well, that the Holy Spirit is the down payment or the first fruits of this resurrected life. That is, we are beginning to experience right now as a Christian, the age to come. Right now, we are beginning to experience love and joy, fellowship with God. All of those blessings that will, will, will come to full fruition in the new heaven and new earth, the Spirit of God in our hearts in this moment is guaranteeing that that will happen. 
So we long for this new body. Part two, longing for our future with Christ, verses 6 to 10. And Paul speaks of three things here as well. He speaks in verses 6 to 8 of desiring to be present with the Lord, that is, uh, after death. Then in verse 9, he speaks of aiming to please the Lord in the current moment. That's what we do until that day. And then verse 10, he says that we should be preparing to meet the Lord. So, first of all, desiring to be present with the Lord, verses 6 to 8. Notice the practical application of what Paul has just said. So, linking up with the first five verses, we are always of good courage. Now, that's the positive way of of saying what Paul said negatively in chapter 4 twice. We do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Instead, we have good courage. Why? Because of what was just said. All of that's true, and because of what he's about to say. He's going to build on this idea of our glorious future by talking about now the presence of Christ being with us. The the focus in the first paragraph was more on this future resurrected body and the life to come. And now the, the focus centers on Christ. Because this future is ours, we're of good courage. We don't lose heart. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. He says it twice. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, we as Christians enjoy the presence of Christ now. But what Paul is saying is that when we die, we experience more of it. To a greater degree. When we die, when we're a Christian, we go to be with the Lord. Right now, verse 7, we live by faith. We live by faith and not sight. We look forward to what lies ahead. Now, to walk by um, sight would mean to just think about this present life. Don't, Don't walk by sight just thinking about health and wealth here as if this were the climax of everything. It's not. To live by faith means... Not that you like believe the unbelievable, like, you know, if I just believe it, I can go dunk a basketball. No, it's not happening. It means to live your life with confident trust in God's promises. That's living by faith. We're, we, it's not a leap into the dark, it's a leap into the light. We have promises. We also have proof in the past of what God has done for us. And one of the ways we please Him, Hebrews says, is by trusting him without faith it is impossible to please him now verse 8 he speaks of the superior value of being with christ when you die this again this intermediate state prior to our resurrection body and paul is saying in in verse 8 when he says that right now we are away from uh the lord that if you had to choose between this mortal body in this life or being with christ upon death Being with Christ upon death is better. In fact, in Philippians 1, when he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain, he says, to die is to be with Christ, which is better by far. Better by far. Now, we will eventually have both, the body and the presence of Christ. And this is is what made Paul so, so... work so tirelessly. This is, this is why you couldn't stop Paul. Hey, Paul, we don't like you, man. We're going to kill you. That'd be all right, bro. To die is gain. Paul, we, we're not going to kill you. We'll let you live. Well, that's great, too. To live is Christ. But, Paul, we're just going to make you suffer. Okay. For I consider the sufferings of this present world not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. 
If you kill me, I'll be with Christ. If you let me live, I'll live for Christ. You make me suffer, I get a reward from Christ. What you got? What do we do now? We live by faith, verse 9, and we aim to please the Lord. This is such a simple, clear, all, uh, what's the word, uh, comprehensive verse. Verse 9, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. We want to please the Lord. Now, don't think of this kind of pleasing like you've got a, a, a bad boss at work and you want to get him or her off your back, so you have to please them. I like to think about this more like the desire to please a great teacher, or even better, a great parent. Dane Ortland says, this is a pleasing born of love. In light of what Christ has done for us, in light of all that Christ has for us in the future, don't we want to please Him? Now, what this means practically, pulling together a few verses in the New Testament, is this. Don't get distracted by foolish controversies in this world so that you get distracted from pleasing the Lord. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.4, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlists him. The soldier is, is, is single-minded. It's focused. And that's a Christian. He says we're like these soldiers. We're not getting entangled in foolish controversies. This means to let this question be the controlling question of your life. Does this please the Lord? That's the choice we have to make every day. I love Ephesians 5. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of life is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord in every decision. We're, we're basically asking this question in our relationships, in our work, with our finances. Paul commends the church in Philippi saying, the gifts that you sent are a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And this is the Christian's aim. And this means that we should pray this for one another. I love the prayer in Colossians 1. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And then he tells us what that involves. Bearing fruit in every good work. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Let's pray for one another that our lives would please the Lord. In all of our decisions, in all of our, in all of our uh, outworking of this life, let us please Him. Verse 10, he goes from pleasing the Lord to preparing to meet the Lord. This is a sobering verse, a great reminder that we serve an awesome Lord. And with reverential awe, we go about our life aiming to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We take our faith seriously now, because this day is coming for us. This judgment seat, this refers to... Uh, the Bema seat, you can still see the remains of that Bema uh, in Corinth today, where the governor would sit and render judgments. Paul himself, Acts 18, stood trial there. And he's saying in the age to come, Christ, the Father's representative, will judge everyone as the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Now, we don't take this to mean that you must earn your salvation. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about anywhere. Some actually think in some faiths that, that you can't have any assurance. And you don't know if your good has outweighed your bad until that day. But we can have assurance. In fact, we just read some assuring verses. Verse 1, we know that we have this building from God. Uh, we've read previously uh, also in, in chapter 4, verse 14, that we will be raised with this new body. So there's assurance for the Christian. Further, our hope today and our faith is not on our merits, but on the merits of Jesus. As 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God alone justifies us through faith in Christ. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. That's our only hope. But Paul is still able to somehow reconcile this salvation by grace alone through faith in Christ alone with this judgment that is about what we've done. And I don't think that's too difficult to work out because a faith that justifies, a faith that, that saves is a faith that works. It's a faith that does good. This is James 2 working it out, right? That, that uh, a faith without works is dead. So those who are, who are doing good are those who are bearing fruit, the fruit of God's grace in their lives. But notice here that this is a comprehensive judgment. All must appear before this judgment seat. And I think Paul has in mind here the pattern of one's life. He's not talking about sinless perfection. That would never be... That, that would, that would uh, that's, our hope is not there. But rather it speaks of the trajectory of our lives, the pattern of our lives, that shows God's grace has been at work in our hearts. Doing good implies that we've been made new in Christ. And now we're living in accordance with who we are. The big idea I think Paul has in verse 10 is this idea of rewards. This good deeds are the fruit of God's grace in our lives and as one writer says all this means all this means that what believers do in this life has serious implications they are accountable to the lord for their actions and will be rewarded or suffer loss accordingly this fact forms the basis of the next verse in which paul speaks of knowing the fear of the lord and we'll get there next week now finally the last thing i would say about verse 10 is this is a word of comfort as well it's a sobering verse, and that's, that's how Paul's using it primarily, to know something of the fear of the Lord, to know that we'll be accountable for how we've lived in this life. But it also means that one day, perfect justice will eventually be served. Our God is not mocked. What you sow, you will reap. So we take our lives seriously now, and if you're following Jesus, you live at peace knowing that He alone is King over all. So, final reflections. Our hopes are not to be planted in this life. Future glory is where our hope lies. New bodies, new creation in the presence of Jesus. And that future energizes our lives right now. And it causes us to make our lives count. This future enables us to not lose heart. It enables us to live with courage and by faith. For our Christ has gone before us. He is coming for us. The Spirit of God is in us. And our final, resplendent, glorious resurrection is guaranteed. Praise be to God. All of this 
is from God. Let's pray together and give him thanks. Father, what promises you've given us in your word. Help us to live this life by faith. By faith in your promises of all that awaits us. Help us to live this life desiring to please our Lord who loved us and gave himself for us. Help us to be of good courage. Help us in this existence while we are burdened with many things, overwhelmed even by many things, that one day all things will be made new. Grant us grace, we pray, to be faithful to the end. In Jesus' good name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Thank you, church.